welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. So my conversation today is with Carmen Neustetter, who's an Associate Professor in the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He's also Director of a Connections Lab Research Group there. I'd wanted to talk to Carmen because he told me about feeling really overwhelmed at one point and deciding to track his work time for a whole year, which is a pretty amazing commitment to take on, I have to say. So he talks here about how he actually went about doing this and how the findings really surprised him, both in terms of the mix of what he actually spent his time on and that he worked way fewer and more flexible hours than he thought he did. He also discusses some practical strategies, um, for example, around handling critiques from reviewers, um, how he manages his email inbox trying to keep it down at zero how he structures his time and and prioritises family. But the big takeaways for me from this conversation are from the threads around reflection and perspective that weave through much of what we talk about. So some more fundamental things, like the importance of taking time to step back and figure out who you are and what's your path, and the importance of empathy and taking on the perspective of others. There's also a point about how much he loves his work and and this reminds me of some work research work on passion that I'd like to return to at the end of this podcast just to reflect on. So enjoy it. Uh, Carmen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's great to have a chance to chat. Yeah, and the trigger for this uh, was you sent me this really great email last year listening to some of the podcasts about some of your own experiences with tracking your own time, which I'll be really interested to talk about. But just for context, can you just give us a little bit of background, uh, just very briefly where you're coming from? Sure. Uh, right now, I'm an associate professor in the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at Simon Fraser University. Um, so that's in Vancouver, Canada. Um, yeah. I got my PhD at the University of Calgary, um, supervised by Saul Greenberg, spent a little bit of time in industry. Um, I was a researcher at Kodak Research Labs for about three years um, before coming back to academia. What was the experience like moving from PhD to industry? Uh, it was, I think it was, it was interesting. I, when I came out of my PhD, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into academia or industry. And so I kind of just sort of followed the tool tracks to see which type of job offers I was getting. Um, I ended up with an industry one. And so I thought I would try that to see, you know, if it would be fulfilling for me. It, it really was. Um, and I really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, but it was sort of really nice to come back to academia. I think in industry, I found sort of this kind of routine sort of thing happening to me over and over. And I really love now the academic lifestyle where I have this sort of influx of students and different ideas and it's kind of this ever-changing yeah. experience. So routine in that you, you you did the same sort of job all the time or in what way was it routine? Yeah, there? It, it kind of felt, you know, you, you'd have this great research idea, you'd explore it, you'd write the paper up, you'd file the patents on it and then cycle would repeat. 
And so it wasn't as much sort of engagement with me and other people as mm -hmm. I think I'm experiencing now in academia. Just the fact that, you know, the new student comes in and has all these really cool ideas that you can kind of build on together to me is just so exciting to experience. So was that, were you just, does that mean the research that you were doing in academia was just more based on you and your own work? It was less collaborative. Um, it was those collaborative aspects. It was certainly collaborative, but I think, you know, as you work with a group of people, you kind of, you get to know each other and you're yeah. sort of have similar ideas um, over time, but just, it's not the same as having the fresh student come in, you know, every two years for a master's student or four years for a PhD or the undergrads that you just get to see for a few months in the summer. Um, it's this kind of constantly changing and dynamic process, which I think mm. I really have found to love. Yeah. So what was the trigger then for coming back to, coming into academia? Um, I think just the desire to, to reconnect with students and to have sort of the academic lifestyle that the, the agency to experience and kind of go after whichever track we think would be interesting to explore. Yeah. So just that, that flexibility, I think, was really what I, I longed for. Yeah. So this was a considered thing and then you went out looking for a job or did a job cab ad come up that triggered the coalesce that thinking? Yeah, it was it was definitely a considered thinking. Um, at the time also um, Kodak was going through maybe not so great of a, a period. Yeah. And so there was kind of questions about would the job stay permanent or not and how long. So kind of my, my brain was actively engaged. Okay, let's keep my eyes open to see what might be out there. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I was lucky to land something back in Canada, um, close to family also, which I think made a huge difference. Um, yeah. So it was a really sort of obvious move back. Yeah. And what was the, do you, how long ago was that transition back? Um, that was in 2010. And so now I've been here eight years. Yeah. Do you remember what the, what the experience was you know, shifting back in, in terms of learning curves, challenges? Yeah, it. It was a struggle initially. Um, you know, I think as an academic, I was getting paid far less than I was as, as an industry researcher, but I was mm -hmm. working way harder as an academic. Yes. And it's my, you know, <laughs> my, just, uh, I, my husband uh, said that where I, you know, halved my pay and doubled my hours when I moved from industry <laughs> to academia. That, that's quite an exaggeration, I have to say. But it, yes, reflects a similar, yeah, similar trend. Exactly. Yeah. And not to say that industrial researchers don't, you know, don't put in a lot of time and hours, but yeah. just as an academic, there was just so many things coming at me that I had to deal with that was exceptionally hard to transition back into. Did having the break make it more difficult, do you think? Um. Maybe, maybe a little bit, but I think it allowed me to understand maybe the situation I was facing in academia more and that I could understand that, wow, you know what, I actually am getting a lot of things kind of thrown at me and more so than I was used to. And so maybe it gave me a little more reflection on, on my own lifestyle right. and my work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had some experience of some different way of working or different patterns of working. Yeah, exactly. And like when I was at Kodak, for example, you know, the emails kind of stopped coming in around 5 p.m. on Friday and not much happened on the weekend. And of course, I think as many people would recognize now as an academic, you're getting emails from students kind of all hours of the day and it doesn't really stop. And so, yeah, just that transition, yeah, I had to adjust to. And what what were some of the other challenges? Just um, getting started as a new new prof. 
I think just trying to establish an identity um, to set up my research group, um, understand what we would focus on and how we would do it and how to sort of present that identity to the rest of the world. And I think I, when I first started out, I was really spending a lot of time on, on figuring out what to do and how. And so making sure I had a, a research lab webpage because I knew it would be critical for future grad students to see, for undergraduates to see for the courses I was teaching, and then also to try and start making the industry ties for grants. So I was really trying to establish identity, I think, first and foremost, and then kind of use that as the framing for everything else that I was trying to do. Mm. What, what about finding that focus? What was that process? Um, that was a bit tricky, um, but I think the the job hunt kind of it helped that out a bit because I ha- I was forced to, as, as people are when they job hunt, to figure out, you know, who are you? What's your vision for the next five, ten years? And so I had that experience doing that while hunting for the job, and I just tried to translate that into establishing my sort of university identity. So that that's interesting, isn't it? Those points like the job interview that provide – make you step above the details and think about actually what are you doing and what do you want to spend your time on? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's an especially challenging task, as as many people know. It's really hard to kind of figure out who you are because you're often so focused with your head down on your work that you don't stop to step back and say, you know, who am I and, and what is my path? But it's so valuable to do. Yeah. Any Any hints about how to do that practically? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's time. It's just stopping and realizing, you know, I can work on another paper or I can spend a half day thinking about what my identity is and how I want to project myself Mm. and, and just taking that time. And I think it's important to reassess that identity. So for example, on my sabbatical last year, I would purposely go on on a hike or a long run and just the goal would be figure out who I am and am I still the person mm. I was before and, and who would mm. I want to be going forward. Mm. And what, what was the answer? Uh, I think it was realizing that, you know what, I've actually accomplished a lot and I'm pretty proud of it. And Good on you. Yeah, so continue on the same track, you know, maybe make some tweaks here and there to create mm. better experiences for my grad students or the classes I'm teaching. Um but yeah, you know, things, you know, being happy with what I had accomplished, I think was really key. Mm. Mm. I like the way you talked about who I am as well, not what I do. Right, right. That was really wow. interesting language because it somehow connects to something that is an essence of what your, uh, I don't know, purpose sounds a little bit grand, but, you know, what it is that's important for you. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's about what's important. And that kind of that thread weaves through sort of the work we do, what we choose to do for, you know, service or teaching, if we have a choice and the research Mm. projects we pursue. And then it also, I think, weaves through kind of how we balance work and family life Mm. and the personal endeavors we want. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's extremely important. Yeah. And I think we, especially when we're, this area we can be so focused on being busy. Mm-hmm. We forget we you know the the old saying about we're human beings and not human doings. <laughs> right. Yeah, so is, true. Yeah. Yeah. 
so what what are some of those sort of qualities or values that that would define or shape or connect with who you are and how you want to be as a researcher an academic hmm. i I think maybe the one that stands out the most is is just being real and sort of being true to yourself and what you do um so I think, you know, a lot of times when we're writing papers, for example, we kind of know what should be in them and how we should talk about stuff. But maybe we like maybe mask a few details or write it, you know, in a certain way that we kind of um, recognize and maybe it's it's what the reviewer wants to see. And I think just recognizing that, you know what, we're all in the same game. We We know these little tricks and, you know. You know, taking out the copyright block on the Kai paper, just get a squeeze a little bit of extra inch of, of writing in. But it's <laughs> when just, it's page limited. Right, when it's page limited, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just, just being real, that, that it, it, telling people what you actually did and this is why you did it and the vision you had and trying not to be afraid of the scrutiny that you'd get or the critique. I think it, it, we're in a tough pr- profession because we have so many people critiquing us and yes. kind of watching us that it's kind of hard yes. to be to put yourself out there. And I think realizing that, you know what, it's okay. It's okay to really show you and what you're doing and and stand up for it. Yeah. And how do you handle the critiques then when they come, inevitably? I think it, to me, I, it's it's been a long process, but I think what I try to do now is to understand and kind of to empathize with the reviewer, if that's possible, to understand like, where where are these comments coming from and what's that person's kind of situation and life situation and why might they see this being a problem with a certain part of the paper? Maybe they're kind of maybe less experienced in the area and so they have brought on this sort of unique insight that's valuable. Maybe they're a student that's still learning how to do reviews and they want to or they're finding things that you wouldn't have noticed. Maybe they're not problems, maybe they are. But just really trying to connect with the reviewer. I almost see this reviewing process that we go through and the critiques from it as like this this conversation between you and this other person. And you're just trying to understand kind of where they're coming from. Um, not saying that they're wrong, but saying that if you can understand their perspective, it'll help your work even more. Mm. So you can interpret whether you agree or take it on board or not. It helps you interpret where they're coming, that what the what the content of that critique is saying exactly yeah i think it helps a lot with the interpretation so i try and get into their head as much as possible and recognize they're just doing the job the best that they can and that's i think valuable for me and you know you talked about all of the critique that we we get necessarily as academics and that makes that time that you talked about where you you know, went off walking or running and, and celebrated, you know, what you had achieved, you know, recognizing what you had achieved, those sorts of things become really important. I, I really, I really think so because I think more often than not, we're getting critiqued about our stuff rather than sort of being praised about the work we do. Mm. Like as, as an instructor in a class, we have, you know, 50 or so students kind of complaining every now and then about things that they're concerned about the papers, you know, getting the reviews back the annual reports on our on our salary reviews they're all things we get critiqued on and you know there may be other professions that get critiqued as much as us but it there's probably not a lot of them yeah yeah i think you're right in some ways mm-hmm. do you so you, you did that when you were on sabbatical you talked about that very deliberately do you have any other sort of routines or practices that help you connect to that you know date more day to day or yeah week to week 
Yeah, so um, I like to go running pretty frequently, several times a day. Um, usually, kind of early. a day. Oh, sorry, not a day. <laughs> a, a week, a week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, no, not that insane. <laughs> Forest Gump. <laughs> yeah, so I'll go running several times a week, um, early morning, kind of. People still sleeping, and you kind of feel like you're getting out there, kind of ahead of the world, and it gives kind of that sort of every few days chance for reflection of what I'm doing, think up new ideas, um, and just kind of reconnect with myself. So that sounds like great a, a great sort of habit or routine to be in on multiple levels because you're doing the looking after your physical health as well as creating that space to think and reflect. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other sort of routines or self-care that you put in place and protect? I'm pretty particular about when I work. Um, mm. So I try super hard not to work in the evenings and not to work in the weekends. And I think I'm I'm pretty good about keeping to that structure. And in some ways, sort of my family kind of makes it so that's easier to achieve because I know yeah. – you know, when supper time is approaching, you know, it's my job to kind of help make supper, help with the kids. Yeah. And then the evening routines are very busy. Um, so, you know, making sure everything is going smoothly. Yeah. I'm spending time with them. And then on the weekend, it's sort of the same thing. It's it's family time. It's time to be with my yeah. wife and kids. Yeah. And, and so I work really hard to not actually do real work during those times. Yeah. And that, from what you said before, is a real part of your identity as well. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm working, I'm, I'm really on and I'm working hard, mm-hmm. but then I purposefully stop and say, you know what? It's family time now. They deserve my time. And, and so I'll spend it with them. Yeah. Were you like that before you had family? Uh, no, I was definitely not. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, without, without little kids running around, it's, it's easier to just say, you know, I'll just spend a few more minutes in the evening checking my email or, or what have you. Mm. Um, and I notice, so when I go away to conferences and my family's not with me, yeah, uh, I'll be working actually quite a bit more because um, it's harder. I think without those pressures, it's easier to slip into a habit of doing work at all sort of sub hours. But what what that's an interesting tell is that it's an interesting habit. It's an easy habit to slip into but we can slip out of it when we choose to. And and in your case, you know, having the family gave you the impetus to make that choice in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for me, it's a it's about choice and recognizing ahead of time what, what my priority is mm-hmm. and making sure that that priority is the family in the mm-hmm. evening and weekend. Yeah. Is that ever hard? Um it's it's hard, I think, when the requests for doing stuff keep coming in. Um, so, for example, on the weekends, um, like many people, I'll get the emails asking me to review something or, or look at something or a student email. And I, I have this this kind of habit of making sure my email inbox is almost zero. It probably sits at zero emails like 80 to 90% of the time. Impressive. Well, <laughs> Maybe, or maybe just really insane about how I, how I manage things. But if something comes in on the weekend, it'll bother me if it's sitting in my email. And so what I'll do is I'll just transfer the item to a to-do list, get it out of my inbox, that inbox is back at zero, and then just wait for Monday for it to, to be worked on. But if, it, if I don't do that, if it's sitting in my email, I will constantly think about it and want to go back to, and do it. So it's got to get out of there. 
That's fascinating. <laughs> That's fascinating. But it's a great strategy because it, it, in a way you, you've sort of said to yourself, I've, I've acted on it, I, hello, I recognise you're here, um, put you on the queue, deal with you at the right time. Yeah, it, it's definitely worked for me. But I, I didn't yeah. always do this and it, it was a problem. But now I think I've sort of managed that part to kind of keep my weekends yeah. to myself. So how else do you, what other things do you do to keep your inbox so low, nearly zero? I mean, I, yeah. I, I need to learn how to better manage <laughs> uh, my inbox. I, I think at one point, maybe about 10 years ago, I'd, I'd heard some advice either from somebody or read it in a book that about touching email only once if you can. So if you can, if you can act on it right away, do it. Otherwise, you know, get rid of it, add it to your to-do list. And so I've followed that process ever since, and it's it has seemed to work well for me. Um, I know it's challenging for some people, but it's definitely working for me. Okay. So do you have a really structured folder system, or you know, uh, because if you're moving stuff out of inbox, yeah, there's there's no structure. It's all into an archive, a, a flat okay. file basically, yeah. and then I'll just search for it on the Monday yeah. from my to do list. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Look and learn. <laughs> so, one you you sound like you're really you you have the potential to be really organised and really structured when you want to. And one of the 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 trigger for wanting to talk to you was another way I see that playing out because you you talk tell me about how you thought you'd been working a lot of hours and then you decided to actually track it. Can you talk us, tell us about that? Yeah. So back in about 2014, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so you're in, you'd been back in academia now for three, four years. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of approaching sort of um, tenure time to apply. And so I definitely felt like I was working a ton of hours and I, at that time, I kind of guessed that maybe I was working more than 50 hours a week or something, maybe even close to 60. And I thought, this is, this is crazy. I completely feel overwhelmed. Um, but I'm going to try and figure out where my time is going and where I'm spending it. And so then for an entire year, I actually kept track of it. Um, and I know there's lots of apps people use that you can track your time. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't quite know what I was after or how I would want to track it over the years. So I just used a spreadsheet. Um, and I recorded kind of in sort of 15 minute time blocks, um, wow. of, yeah, <laughs> of how I was spending my time. And so I'd write, you know, a record if, if I did some work for a grad student, like reviewing a paper, I put down like an hour, hour and a half or whatever. Um, I also tracked the time of day. So just splitting up like early morning, morning, afternoon or evening. Um, and then also had a spot for weekend though. It didn't really get many hours in it. Um, and then I just tracked it for a year to see, you know, what time of day I was spending a lot of time, who I was spending it on, or was it service, teaching, or research, um, and how did the numbers actually actually come out at the end of that year? So come tracking every fifteen minutes for a year. That what was that like? It it was super painful and I'm monotonous. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, every day I would. I would sort of force myself to to fill in the time blocks or do it at a few points in the day. And every day I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, but now that I've done it and looking back, it was so incredibly valuable. I'm really glad that I was able to persevere through it. But, how but it did was not you, without pain. How did you persevere? Because that would have been painful. 
Well, I think so part part of the perseverance was just kind of getting seeing little tidbits of information like, huh, it's really kind of strange that this month I spent most of my research time on this one student out of like six. Mm. And then and so it was these little tidbits that would come up for me now and then or realizing, huh, I seem to have worked more early morning this month than last month. These kind of just little interesting tidbits kind of yeah. kept me going thinking, you know, what new could I learn next time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So little slivers of um, insight. Yeah, I, I think that really drove me to keep going. Well, that's that's an impressive personal quality as well, though, just to be able to persevere <laughs> like that. Thanks. So, how did that come out? Um, so it was really surprising to me. Um, so, as as I think many universities, you have the structure of what forty percent research, forty percent teaching, and twenty percent service. And so I thought I was doing way more service and teaching time um, than my research time. Um, but it turned out that in that entire year, so that included both teaching terms and and one sort of summer research term, uh, my research time was actually 67% of my time. Oh, averaged over, over the year. Yeah, over yeah. the year. So it was a kind of mixture of, of uh, teaching and research terms. Um, and teaching – was only, and I don't know about my students to hear this, but it was only 15% of my time. Uh, and and only 18% of my time was service. Um, wow. So it was way different than I thought. Um, I was spending, you know, most of the time doing the research stuff I really loved and not a lot of time sort of doing the teaching things that I thought were taking up a lot of my time. Uh, and on average, I think I worked about 39-ish hours a week so it was way less than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So 39 hours. And at the beginning of that year, what would you have said you thought you were working? It, it definitely felt over 50 hours. Um, and, and it felt over 50 hours because I was sure I was probably working a solid eight-hour day. And then maybe like spend an hour in the evening doing email or maybe like a half hour, hour on the weekend. And I was sure it would add up to something in that order because it felt mm. like I was completely overwhelmed and working all the mm. time. Yeah. But but so different. Um, there were some weeks when I worked 30 to 35 hours. Some days I had a four-hour day and I didn't even really realize <laughs> it. Um, you know, on the on the majority of days but it was were between you, – yeah, yeah. Were you at work? Were you in the office for eight hours and only worked for four of those eight hours or were you – is that saying you're only in the office for four hours and worked four hours? No. Um, so I have a, a pretty flexible way I handle my day, I think. So I'll basically work kind of wherever, whenever. Um, I'll be at the university campus, you know, varied between, let's say, probably four to eight hours. And mostly I'll be there if there's meetings. Um, mm. If I can, I'll work from home because I know I can be much more focused. Um, so time on campus definitely didn't match sort of an eight hour day, but I would work like early morning time. Um, I get up pretty early, um, usually around five, do some stuff before the kids wake up, help get them ready for school and send them off. I'll work in the morning time and then the afternoon and then finish up sometime in the afternoon and maybe check email in the evening. Mm. Um, so kind of pretty flexible, um, yeah. I would say in terms of the hours. Yeah. And so days when, you know, maybe it was four hours, it was just because there was a few sort of family things that kind of interjected yeah. in the day and I just didn't get that much work time in. Yeah. 
and great having a job that has the flexibility to allow you to be responsive to those needs. Oh, no kidding. Like that, there, you know, I think there's probably a few jobs that would let me do this kind of lifestyle and structure. And so, yeah, immensely valuable to be able to do that. And just to, to have a four hour day and then some days maybe a 10 hour day that, that balance itself out. Um, I think extremely beneficial for kind of mm. the, the type of job that we have. Yeah. So what do you think contributes to that feeling of it being so much more? So, yeah, I had, I had to really ask myself, I think some tough questions about, you know, why, why was I feeling overwhelmed and exhausted and, and so on with some days having really light hours and some having more, um, but generally pretty on average in terms of uh, work life. And I think, you know, maybe a lot of it comes down to, to choice and that there's so many people sort of demanding my attention that um, it can be overwhelming. And, and just the, the, you know, the questions of, well, can you review this? I kind of need to know by tomorrow and to have so many of those things coming in the number of contact points Maybe that's part of it. Maybe mm. the fact that I could have, you know, potentially 50 students, you know, asking me something, of course, it's not usually that high, but, mm. and then all my grad students asking things, you know, reviewers and, and so on, all these service roles, there's just a lot of contact points. And for me, just those many things coming at me, I think is a bit overwhelming. So even though they're not actually resulting in significant work or some of them you know, fr from at least the minutes that you added up the mm -hmm. time you added up is it more the sort of the thinking about it or the the sense is it the responsibility part of it yeah what aspect it, of that all that stuff coming at you do you think is the trigger for yeah i think to me it's sort of that sense of responsibility i i, I love i love helping people and being helpful and I love giving people feedback on things because I really see value in trying to improve other people's work and improve them and so on. And so I, I really feel obligated to, when I get a request to, to help somebody out. Now, this doesn't mean I think for listeners, they should ask me for review requests. <laughs> <laughs> that was a risky thing to say. Yeah. To yeah, maybe, I'll, to. <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll take that back. Uh, yeah. But yeah, just these requests coming in and feeling like I want to help others I think always sort of meant or means that um, it doesn't let me get to the thing I personally want to do. And so that lack of getting to that thing I want to do is frustrating and maybe a bit overwhelming. And it means that maybe I don't feel that I have as much choice as I ought to. And is that why, because you talked before about you, the research was actually substantially more and you loved it. You know, it yeah. sounded the way you said it sounded like it didn't feel like work, but was that with it was the teaching feeling more like work? Yeah, I think, I think teaching, I would say feels a little more like work because maybe there's less control over it. Like I'm sort of forced to go into a room for a, you know, a three hour period for a studio class I have to engage with certain students about specific assignment and it's not maybe as loose as my research time is. So yeah, just that kind of forced activity I bit is a bit, I think, um, of a struggle. Um, not to say I don't love teaching because I think it reinvigorates me in a way for other things in life um, that is extremely valuable. But yeah, it's just that sort of freedom of choice of what I do. And I know that maybe sounds funny for an academic that basically gets to choose a lot of what they work on. Um, but just with so many things coming at me, 
I think to me, that's the real, the real struggle and the challenge. Yeah. So having done that um, time tracking and really got that surprise about how you did actually spend your time and, and what division of work, how does it feel now with all of those requests and demands coming in and is, does it still give you that sense of overwhelm? I think it does, but just looking through my time made me realize sort of that this is happening. So one, just sort of recognizing this is happening, um, but also then using that as kind of leverage to think about what choices I make. Um, mm -hmm. And so not being afraid to say no to a certain mm -hmm. request or, or telling somebody, you know what, this is going to take me more time than, than you have or when you need it back by. But then also kind of figuring out, well, okay, when do I work best? And how can I adjust things in my schedule so that I'm sort of on the top of my game for certain things? And so I've learned to structure work a bit better. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I, I've learned that I am my most productive really early in the morning yeah. and also right after lunch. And so I will purposely schedule my difficult tasks during those two times. Um, there's some things that are fairly easy for me to do. Um, certain service things I find much faster to do if they're kind of administrative. So I can do those at the end of the day when I'm kind of exhausted. Um, so just kind of picking and choosing a, a bit better. Mm. Or, or um, for example, like writing a paper. I always find the discussion section the hardest to write. Yes. Um, it's kind of, it's the most insightful, but it's hard to get those insights. And so I, I will structure my time so that I, I write sort of a draft of the discussion section just before a point in time when I know I can go on a run and then I'll have that time period to think back on what I just wrote to see if there's any new insights I might come up with. Oh, that's really nice. That's really nice. And there's all of the research that talks about the value of getting out into green space and, and fresh air and right. uh, what that does for sort of reflection, rumination um, and right. insights. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And for days when I can't go for a run, I will purposely try and get to like that discussion-y stuff that I have to really think through just before I have to do my drive into work. So then I'll have this drive, I'll keep the radio off, the music off, podcasts off, whatever, and spend like 45 minutes just driving and just thinking through what I was just working on. That's um, great. It, it works well, except keeping notes of those ideas that come up while I'm driving yeah. or while I'm running. <laughs> but you'll have your smart car soon and it'll, it can read your <laughs> <Right>. mind. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But, um, so I'm just curious, though, in your tracking of your work time, would you have tracked that 45-minute commute thinking time about the paper as work or not? Ah, that's a really good catch. I, I wouldn't have tracked that as work time, yeah. which, which is another interesting thing that kind of work is on my brain a lot of the time. It's hard to get it off my brain. Yeah, and maybe that's also what contributes to the, some sense of working more than the actual sort of hours sitting at the desk or or um, actually working. Is that head time? Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, though I think what what I find fascinating about that is I think my best ideas come when I'm not working, and so it's hard to sort of give up that or to stop working because I know maybe there's a good idea coming up. Yeah. And yeah. I want to keep that keep that track keep track of it. But it's also the nature of the work we do, isn't it? That it's largely that a lot of it is intellectual work, which mm -hmm. is in the mind, which is thinking. And right, exactly, um, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. you you never know what you're going to see 
in your day that's going to spawn a great idea. Yes. Yeah. Um, like I, I swear I've had so many great ideas just like watching my kids practice a sport or at the violin lessons, you know, just anything random can kind of trigger something good. So there's some way of just accepting that this is woven into everything that we do just just by nature of it of that sort of work and yeah that's that's it I, I have worked at a job where you know when you finished at three o'clock even if you had been busy running all day when I when I was a nurse uh, you know you would walk out and you could basically stop thinking about anything until you went back you know to your next shift and you know occasionally you did think about stuff but you, you could leave it, and I have thought often about the fact that this job you don't have those clear headspace separation points. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. It's it's not there, and I think for me, because I f so fluidly work in different locations, yeah. that kind yeah. of it it makes it even muddier. Exactly. In that there's no there's no set place I'm working. Yeah, but you sound like you've got some great strategy. So there's this sense of there's this yes. We live with you know, those thoughts being part of what we do and how we work, but you're also very good at creating the separations and stepping back when you need to. I think so, yeah. I think even though the ideas kind of flow in non-work time, it's easy enough for me to separate out them and not, not sort mm. of linger on the ideas when they come during non-work time. Mm. It's just a matter of quickly getting something down as a note somewhere yeah. Um, and then getting back to the the personal stuff that I really enjoy too. Yeah. 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 yeah interesting challenges for staying sane. <laughs> it, it it really is. Yeah. It really is. And I I I swear, there's probably so many times where my kids or my wife look at me wondering, like, why why is he like quickly typing in a note to his phone? <laughs> And it's that great idea I don't want to miss. And sometimes I'll tell them that, but I, I don't know that they fully understand what, how important it is. And, and how quickly it can disappear. Yes, no well. kidding. Exactly. Yeah. Easy gone. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So when have you not managed this so well? Um, I think it's it's tougher when there's sort of family visiting, when you have guests to your house and there's so much more going on. Um you know, I think using sort of phones when people, other people are around can easily be considered rude and misconstrued. Mm. And so it's hard just to, to spend that time to get that quick thought down. Um, although I guess the nice thing about having others around, family or friends, is that it, again, forces you to sort of disengage from the work more and focus on personal mm. life a bit more. So it's kind of, um, you know, the best in both, I think. Mm. Yeah. So lots of fluidity, lots of flexibility, choices to make. And you said before about choices, you know, that you often have to say, no, what criteria do you have um, in mind when you're trying to make those choices? I think now Apart it's… Apart from it, some of the ones we've talked about. Right. I think now it's it's really about doing what I know I love to do. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been a telepresence co-chair at a number of conferences for a few years now. It's a lot of work, but it's it's stuff I love doing, and mm -hmm. so it's it's not really like work. And so those sorts of things I'll pick up almost yeah. immediately. So telepresence for people who might not be aware is uh, these 
screens walking around on mobile platforms like robots who, where people can remotely participate. So they, they will be present via the screen and they can manipulate their robot walking around the conference. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people we've seen use these at conferences like Kai, um, you know, doing it because the life situations they're facing mean they can't actually get to the conference. Yeah. This work-life balance um, also creates struggle for traveling. And yes. these sort of remote yeah. attendance experiences allow people to be more flexible with their time. Yeah. So that's a great service in enabling people to do that. Yeah, I think so. And I think I do it because I see the value that other people experience yeah. from it. Yeah. So I also remember you talking about your sabbatical, you know, this because this connects to something there. So tell us about that sabbatical experience. Right. So last year I was on sabbatical. Um, for most of the year, um, I just worked at home because I have young kids. And so it was a bit hard to plan any long-term mm -hmm. travel. Um, but, you know, of course, the one time when I can sort of just focus on my research but, you know, about three months in, I started to recognize I, I need other stuff going on. And I really <laughs> miss my normal job. <laughs> and That's I was, interesting. I was missing the teaching and I was missing kind of the service stuff. And I was starting to realize that I, I couldn't just do research full on. Um, like I needed these breaks to teach, get more ideas, talk to more people, engage in service activities again to kind of stimulate my brain in new and creative ways and so i was realizing actually how much i valued them now that they were gone <laughs> that's fascinating yeah and it <laughs> it was it was a really weird situation because you know i'd waited so long to have my first sabbatical and i was really excited about it and i didn't realize i would have this kind of uh sort of immense feeling of guilt for not working and not doing all the things that I used to be doing um, and just kind of taking the time for myself to do the research or be a bit more slower in my productivity. And so it was this really kind of odd experience for me. So just, so you were, so I'm just, I'm just trying to get my head around that. So you, you mm -hmm. were wanting the time out to focus on your research, but then felt guilty or did you say yeah yeah just this this feeling that i should be doing more and maybe i wasn't working hard enough and maybe i should be connecting more with my grad students or you know taking on that paper review that that i didn't really want to do because i was sort of so-called on sabbatical and and it was just these feelings that of wanting to do more even though i probably didn't have to at that point so there are a couple of, you know, because you talked about shoulds, the feeling, things that you should be doing, but then at the end you talk about wanting to do. And there's sort of, where, where does that tension sit? Yeah, it's it's a difficult tension, I think, because I've been sort of so trained to be full on and doing so many different things that I felt like I should be doing more, even though I wasn't now, but also kind of wanting to do more in that I missed certain parts of my job yeah. that I actually turned out I really loved after having, you know, so many years of not being on sabbatical and doing, you know, the teaching and the service and yeah. then wanting to get away from them for a bit, but then very quickly realizing, you know what, I actually really love this stuff. So that comes back to your choice thing as well. Now that you were on sabbatical, uh, it was your choice to step back into them. Ah, uh, yes, I think so. And, and that choice I think was key. And 
that's why I sort of started to re-engage a little bit after about four months of, of my mm. year-long sabbatical mm. because I wanted to do certain things and it really felt like I had the choice to do them if I did, if I did do them. Mm. So that should didn't overweigh that sense of choice. It, it didn't. And, and so I, I sort of re-engaged a bit, but mm. I still, I still felt guilty in the sense that I knew as a sabbatical it was my time to kind of disengage a little bit mm. And so there's this kind of very big mental turmoil about what should I be doing? And am I going to get to the end of my year and think, oh, why didn't I step back more and do less? And so it was, it was kind of this big mental struggle throughout a lot yeah. of that time period. Yeah. So how did you get to the end of the year? Um, what were I, you thinking? What was I thinking at the end of the year? Yeah. Um, I think I've, I felt pretty good. I had accomplished a lot in that year. Um did more than I originally had planned to do um, when it was leading up to the sabbatical. But, you know, I was happy. I think I was happy with what I did mostly because I was making choices about what I could do and saying no to, to a lot of things, but also to saying yes to certain things that I would really love. Mm. And I don't think I look back and regret at all. Um, but it was sort of a turning point where I realized moving forward, get back that choice, you know, really think about what it is I want to do. And and don't be afraid to do that. Yeah. As time's moving on, as are, are you thinking about that? You know, you did say before that you're happy with your identity, you know, in recent reflections. How do you see your career moving forward? Because you're you're heading into you're tenured now and you're you know, mid career perhaps would would we say? Right. Um I think sort of research wise, I know the direction I'm heading. Um, but I think there's new things that are, that have come up in the last year or so, sort of more administrative work within my department. Um, so it's, it's getting a bit of a different taste of academic life. Um, understanding the, the internal politics of getting things through policies through the university procedures and the bureaucracy. Um, so I think that's interesting to me. Um, and you know, it's funny, the more, the more experienced I become in, in the university setting, the more I begin to understand people more and, you know, why, like in my first year of being a prof, like so-and-so didn't reply to my email or give me feedback on something, you begin to see why certain people are doing things the way they're doing and maybe the struggles they're having. Um, so it's bringing even more understanding, I think, to sort of the whole picture of what academic life is like. So you seem really good at being able to do perspective taking, you know, because you did brought that same view to thinking about the reviewers who are critiquing your papers. Yeah, I I think I've I've tried hard to understand people's opinions from their perspective. Um, like I I've learned in this past year that the easiest way to sort of get policy through at least my school is to understand the perspectives that other people have and why they have them. And, you know, recognizing they're important and then working that into the policies that I put forward, it'll be far likely to far more likely to go through and see less changes if I sort of immediately incorporate what I think other people's views will be in their needs initially. Nice. And so it's, it seemed to be really valuable. And, um, you know, I think, I hope that I can continue to sort of figure out, sort of figure out people and, and what makes everybody tick because it's, it certainly has helped me a lot. So can you give some very practical examples of how you go about getting those different understandings of other people and incorporating them? 
Yeah, I think I've learned to talk a lot with people. Um, like, you know, be before a, a committee meeting, um, talk with specific individuals and just figure out, okay, what, what are they hoping to get out of this upcoming meeting or what's their view on the policy or what's their view on the paper? And then if I can go into a meeting with those perspectives in mind, um, it's so much smoother because we're already on the same page. And so it's a lot of prep work, I think, um, just prep work and understanding people. Um, and I think a lot of this came out of uh, maybe four or five years ago. Um, we had a person come to our, our department as part of a research program that taught us empathy training and how to really empathize with other people. Um, it was sort of in the context of how you would run a study with people and understand their needs and their backgrounds. But it's it's turned out to be really valuable for kind of all mm. walks of life I've found is just to empathize and understand others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And often, and yeah, there's a lot of research in the management space, leadership space, about the critical importance of these sorts of empathy skills uh, in good leaders. Yeah, exactly. I think mm. it, it's... To me, it's super valuable. And I think mm. for the most part, people are, are are often pretty good natured and they're trying to do things for good reason. They may not always agree, but they usually have a pretty good reason why they're putting forward a perspective. And it, even if it comes off as sort of being antagonistic, if you can actually pin down like why, why they're coming with that view, it all of a sudden becomes non-antagonistic and you can kind of really engage with the person a lot better. Funny, we could learn to do this as a society more generally, given current <laughs> debates and discussions. So, yeah, no doubt. Critical life skill, yeah. yeah, I don't, yeah. Just, I really love hearing what you're doing there about, you know, you're going into these meetings, you're using the pre-meeting time, the sort of informal casual taste, not to push your own agenda or to lobby, because I have in my mind, you know, some other experiences that I've had where someone else would use that occasion and not interested in what you've got to say, but just wanting to tell you what they want to do and what they want to push. Um, and yeah. you're taking a very different perspective that seems to be effective. It, for the most part, I think, yeah, it, it has been pretty effective. I think mm. it, it's created sort of less, uh, uh, sort of less butting heads in meetings. Um, we're much faster to get on, on the same page and to get things accomplished, mm. but it, it, it has taken up, a lot of work. It's it's yeah. a lot of work to figure out people ahead of time, um, and figure out sort of what their views are to sort of really work together that way. Um, so it's challenging, and then that of course takes up other parts of my time and whatnot. So again, more balance and struggle. Yeah, yeah. So you had this empathy training as part of research. Do you? But do you see any space for that sort of training more generally for anyone who's a a leader, project manager, team, you know, prof, mm -hmm. department head. Yeah, I would say absolutely. For me, really all walks of life, I try to use sort of similar mm. techniques at work, writing papers with my grad students, um, even working with my family and, and trying to figure out kind of on a day-to-day -day basis how people are doing and, mm. you know, why is, why is one kid upset? Well, there's probably a pretty good reason for it. It's not just that they're acting out. It's that something happened to them that day. And if you can really tease out the actual core challenge, I think things go a lot smoother. Or like, you know, the grad student that's maybe taking longer to write a paper than you anticipate. It's not because, you know, they're being lazy or they just don't want to do it or they're bad at it. There's usually something going on. And if you can tease out what that is, it's smoother for both of you. 
So how would you have that sort of conversation with your grad student who's having problem writing papers or how would you go about getting that understanding? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's it's a lot of listening. Um, so, you know, I might have a, a meeting set up with a student and just start out by saying, I can tell there's struggles with this paper. Um, it's not coming out maybe as fast as we might both like. Um, let's sort of talk about the situation and how are things going for you. And then hopefully the student sort of will open up and say, well, you know, this is actually what's happening. Sometimes it's a challenge, but I think just sort of talking and probing and and actually really just trying to listen more eventually gets out sort of what the real challenge is. And then we can kind of talk through it and figure out a nice sort of mutual way of moving around it. And also um, letting them know that I think my goal is not to put pressure on them to get a paper ready for whatever paper deadline. It's to get the best work out of them that they can and the best sort of training. And so we kind of realizing we both have mutual goals here is, is to improve their, their learning. Then we kind of realize, okay, that's what we're both after. And then we can move forward from that point. Mm, sounds brilliant. Sounds really brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. What what other things do you do in your group? You talked about lots of PhDs and you know, postdocs and that. Mm-hmm. What other sort of tips, techniques, tricks do you have in running your group? Uh, so I try and, and foster um, sort of a lab culture above everything else, a culture where we're really highly um, sort of dependent on each other and willing to help each other. Um, uh, and I, I learned this um, from my advisor, Saul Greenberg. Um, I worked in an amazing lab back in Calgary. Um, and I, I, I've, I've, I'll admit, I've listened to Saul's podcast at least two or three times now um, since it came out. And you uh, were there. You lived it. We'll, I, we'll link this on the webpage. <laughs> cool, cool, yeah. I definitely lived it. And from there, from that, from Saul and from also Sheila Carpendale at the time, um, just learning about sort of just promoting this shared culture and sort of shared responsibility and helping people out. And I've tried to really instill that in my research group um, at SFU, um, that we're a team, that we're kind of this sort of family, close-knit group of people. And if somebody has a problem, they shouldn't feel afraid to talk to the rest of the group about it and see how they can help each other out. Um, sometimes it's, it's tough. Like, you know, we'll have a lab meeting and you know, like a certain person is kind of struggling with something and they can't quite get themselves to ask for the help from other people, but you know that others are there that know the answer. Um, so it takes a bit of prodding sometimes, but ultimately, you know, the students will talk and then just sort of share that sense of responsibility for getting the projects going. Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, just looking at sort of wrapping up. Are there any other things that you would want to talk about or share or? Hmm. I, I think so much of our time is spent with our heads down and just trying to get things done. And I, I still struggle with, with lifting my head up and getting that broader perspective but I really think just scheduling in just a little bit of time every once in a while to get that perspective back is is super important. Um, yeah. I, I remember before I went on my sabbatical, um, Joanna McGrenery from UBC, University of British Columbia in Canada, gave me this really great advice that on your sabbatical, schedule time every week or every few days or, or at least some sort of regimented routine where you put in your calendar that you're going to spend that time just for kind of personal reflection. 
Mm. Um, and I thought this was great advice and I, I tried really hard to do it. But I think that advice is actually applicable even just beyond a sabbatical that Definitely. schedule that, that time block, even if it's the 15 minutes or a half an hour or, you know, run or a walk every now and then, or just that, that drive into work in kind of silence in your vehicle or, or whatever. But making that, I think, a, a point of your actual regular routine is, is so incredibly valuable. It has been for me, um, and I would hope it could be sort of valuable for other people also. Yeah, and there's a quality of that time and reflection that comes through everything that you've said where that isn't time to ruminate, reflect. It's mm. time to reflect in more positive ways about what your identity is or celebrating, you know, you talked about celebrating and recognizing your achievements and what you've done. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. It, it can be easy to ruminate over the things that we know didn't go so well or the reviews we get, all the, all the critiques we get can be so easy to think about those and overthink them. Mm. But yeah, stepping, stepping past that and saying, you know what, I'm actually doing really good stuff. How do I keep that path going forward? And how yeah. do I also have time for myself? Yeah. How do I do more of what's working well? Exactly. Yeah. Recognize mm -hmm. what's working well and do more of it. Yeah. 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 Which is what it sounds like you've done a really great job of doing in quite sort of structured and reflective ways. And, you know, love hearing about the way that you love your job and, you know, the passion enthusiasm that you bring to it and the ability to take perspectives of other people and to be empathic. I, I think they're really critical skills. And through all this, do great research. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they're, the, they're the triggers of great research. So thank you, Carmen, for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem at all. This has actually been really fun. Thank you. Great. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. And if I can just add an observation of my own here, connecting to the point about passion that I made at the beginning... It's a common story we hear from academics about um, people loving their work but also dealing with that tension of feeling like we're working too much. Now, Carmen provides us with a way of maybe reflecting on are we really working too much or does it just feel like that and why? But I'd also like to connect to this idea of passion and uh, it's defined by researcher Robert Valorand as something that's a self-defining activity that we love to do, that we consider important and that we're prepared to put in lots of time and energy to. But then it can be this very love combined with the autonomy and flexibility that we have as academics that can lead to overwork and burnout. And you might remember from a previous con uh, podcast with Yolanda Burke, where she talked about this as being obsessive passion, when this love gets out of kilter. The opposite of this is harmonious passion. And I mention this because I think Carmen makes, made a statement at one point that perfectly characterizes the essence of, of good harmonious passion when he says, when I'm working, I'm really on and working really hard, but then I purposely stop and say, you know what, it's family time now, they deserve my time. I'll add in a couple of links about passion on the Changing Academic Life webpage if you're interested in reading any more about. might be something useful just to reflect on. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. 
and you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm-hmm.